HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. Since 2009, HRN podcasts have been exploring the wide world of food, beverage, and agriculture. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. Hello to everyone. I'm Louisa Kasdan, your host for Let's Talk About Food, a podcast devoted to first-person storytelling where food plays a pivotal, if not a starring role. Everyone has a food story. Food is at the heart of human connection, at the center of love, of ritual, of need and want, and most of all, food creates community. And community is what we crave. Our guest today is wine writer extraordinaire Alice Firing. Her new memoir, To Fall in Love, Drink This, is one of the loveliest and most surprising books I've read this year. From sniffing snaps with her grandfather, to mucking about in vineyards and wine cellars, to weird and in one case very scary boyfriends, to her epic fights with big wine, it's a terrific read. So good, you might want to slurp it down in a single sitting instead of sipping it lovingly over a few days. Now, let's hear from Alice. Alice, I loved this book. I have the, I don't know if I have the complete Alice Fearing Irv, but I have a couple of other books. How many books have you written so far? Uh, depending on how you count, six or eight. Was this a very personal book for you to write? It's completely personal. My agent had suggested that I do a book of essays, and the only way that I saw that I could make it cohesive was to build it around a memoir. It was a quite an interesting experience trying to figure out which 15, actually it's 30 essays in this book, that not only was reflective of how I became who I became, but also have something to give the reader without just being navel-gazing about my life, which actually I don't think was terribly interesting. <laughs> well, I found your life very interesting. And one of the things that I thought most interesting was the process by which you discovered that you had a very, very acute palate. And that started quite young. Could you talk about that part of it? Yeah, it did start quite young. Uh, Lee you know, it was uh, my grandfather who became a fellow sniffer. That's the first essay in the book. And probably my first smell memory is him 
telling me the bedtime story of the three bears who went to see the mamala, me, and that story always ended with a bissel of schnapps, a little bit of whiskey, of which I remember smelling, getting the sharpness, and immediately sneezing. <laughs> and after that, there was... Uh, the basamam box, so the the spice box after after Shabbos, there is a tradition called Havdalah where you have a light and you've got a spice box and it goes around everybody's nose. And I just realized yesterday that when I today when I use spice box for a wine descriptor, I'm really talking about this very specific spice box, cloves and cinnamon, which doesn't necessarily relate to others. But after that. You know, I noticed that my grandfather had a drawer of little tiny miniature perfume bottles. And as a game, we would sit and sniff them together. And we wouldn't really even talk about what we were smelling. But obviously, our brains were clicking along as we shared this experience. I was terribly ridiculed by my mother and father and brother for sniffing everything that went into my mouth. And it was just a habit that I couldn't get rid of. So there you go, the beginnings of a wine writer. And now I'm going to ask wine writer Alice Firing to read from her new wine writer's memoir, To Fall in Love, Drink This. This is the beginning of the first essay, chapter. Then there was perfume. I am three years old, spending the night with my mother's parents. Pop tells me a story he made up just for me, his doted upon granddaughter. In the most creative combination of Yiddish and English, he spins some cockamamie story of these three bears who come to see the mamala, who gives them a little schnapps. Once finished, he asks me, mamala, a bisla schnapps? I reach for his comforting, papery hand, and we pat into the kitchen. Me, a wispy, sloppy, red-headed toddler in Dr. Denton's. He always meticulous, with a noble nose whose head is never uncovered. I am fascinated by his tzitzits, the poncho-like religious undergarment with dangling fringes. He always wears it, even to bed. Seeing that the fringes are poking out from his eggplant-colored robe beneath its tie, I pull on them, almost expecting to hear a ring. He reaches into the cupboard for the cut glass decanter and two small glasses, he pours token amounts for us, and he shows me how to place the glass not too close under my nose. I take an extremely short and shallow sniff. I sneeze from its heat. Pop tells me how to say the charcoal prayer with him, and only then am I allowed to take a sip. Years later, on a visit, I walked into his bedroom in the afternoon. He was in that eggplant-colored robe over a suit. He always wore a suit, and he had his back to me. I was amused and watched him hold the smallest of bottles to his nose. Pop, what are you doing? I asked him. He opened his top drawer and showed me at least a dozen more miniature perfume bottles. How completely eccentric, I thought, and also I was charmed to discover this private fetish. This was our next training frontier. We would sniff those bottles together for a while. We had an aroma language all of our own. Even if I never learned to speak adequate Yiddish or he English, we never used descriptive words like roses or peonies. We didn't need them. It's so great. Alice, for the seven people who were listening to this who don't know what schnapps is, what's schnapps? Schnapps was Yiddish catch-all for any alcohol. 
So most people would think of it as, you know, like peppermint schnapps, something super sweet. But for my grandfather, it was just whiskey. And it is whiskey in Yiddish. <laughs> I love it. You know, in my family, it was Slivovitz, which was equally terrible. Right, that's yeah. not- <laughs> You know, everything was the catch-all. And I, yeah. <laughs> I loved, I lo- actually, I have a very fond place in my heart for Shlivovitz. <laughs> Talk about fiery stuff, adore it. So you came from this little redhead in Dr. Denton's, um, mm-hmm. sniffing perfume bottles and having a little bissel of schnapps to this person who went through this whole long journey and ended up in kind of a very rarefied world of wine writing. When I first met you, you were in this burst of celebrity because you had taken on Robert Parker. And yes. suddenly, <laughs> can you tell suddenly us Suddenly everybody about, wanted to punch me in the face. Yes. <laughs> tell us a little bit about that for people who don't know about this firing Robert Parker stalker. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Robert Parker was at one point the world's most famous wine critic and probably the world's most famous wine critic past, present, future. I don't think there will ever be another person who has that kind of influence in the wine world. And he came out with his wine advocate in the 80s as kind of a consumer reports-like thing about wine. And he became so widely popular that people started to make wines to his taste so they could get him to anoint them 95 or 100 points. This had a very devastating effect on the wine world where people were just changing the traditional ways of making wine and turning everything into bombastic fruit bombs. So uh, around 2005, when I sold the proposal for this book, I had really had enough. All of my colleagues were bitching and moaning about this extinguishing of the natural or the traditional wine world, but would never put it in print. So I just decided for once in my life, it was time not to assume somebody else was going to do the work. And I wrote this book in narrative nonfiction of how this one person's palate was putting the wines that I love dearly in danger. And so that was it. And a lot of people applauded me. And a lot of people hated me and sent me death threats. And it was, it was like, oh, you know, it was all of a sudden I emerged from being this shy, introverted wine writer to being this controversial lightning rod. (laughs) So your problem was that all of the winemakers were now trying to kind of reverse engineer to Robert Parker's palate. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, they were using all of the technology that science had given them to be able to eradicate vintage variation and make a consistent product. Parker loved big wines. So all of a sudden, Burgundy was tasting like Bordeaux and everybody was tasting like Napa Valley. Yeah. Oh, no. Burgundy like Bordeaux. Oh, no. Yeah. <laughs> and and terrible. how did Parker respond to to your crusade? Well, the last time he and I talked was when he was interviewed for the book. And after that, he refused to ever speak to me ever again. (laughs) Even though there were people who wrote for him who actually said, you know, if Bob read the book, he'd actually like it. Because I made it very clear that the only problem with Robert Parker was 
willful ignorance that he didn't say, hey, look, guys, I know you are doing this to suit me, but can you stop? No, he refused to acknowledge that this was an issue. So the book came out and you exposed the consolidation that was going on in the, the flavor palette. And what happened? What happened? Okay, what happened as far as the wine world is concerned? It was a slow, it was a slow movement towards market regulation, shall we say. It also coincided with the burst of the natural wine movement. Is at that point, I was writing about natural wines, wines that are made from organic viticulture, nothing added, nothing taken away, except the only additive, maybe some small amounts of sulfur. So that started moving forward. And by the time 2011 came by, people were starting to argue about natural wine. But by the time 2015 came around, it was the start of way more diversity in the wine world. So a lot of people who had been making parkerized wines started to coming back to the way their grandfather made wines. Hmm. So where we are now in 2022 is a whole lot of diversity in the wine world. And for some wine regions, at least an authentic wine, a traditional wine is the only way to make wine. Way more organic or biodynamic viticulture and more choice in winemaking vessels. New oak is kind of anathema. Very little effect of new oak on wines. And, um, you know, there's a lot of good stuff around right now. I listen to you and there are so many things I don't actually know what they mean. When you say <laughs> new oak, what are you actually saying? Well, New oak barrels. So wine must be fermented in something. So for a very long time, for centuries, people would not replace their barrels, but they would refurbish them. They would clean them and use them again and again for centuries, or at least for 20 years. And then in the 1970s, ah, let's start using some new oak. That may be fine. Then people started to toast them. And the effect on a wine, and it became very popular in a real Robert Parker kind of wine tool, is that it gave it flavors of toast and coffee and vanilla and cherry vanilla. So these are all the effects of the flavors of that came from the new oak and not from the wine that I objected to. Wow, sounds like the only thing you left out was cherry coke. There's in there too. <laughs> <laughs> and and then I have a, just one other follow-up question about this. The natural wine movements, it seems to me that those are perforce going to be smaller vintners, smaller output, smaller scale production, and that there must still be this huge market for, I mean, not only did Parker's own palate get developed, but those of us who drink wines essentially started to develop a Parker palate as well. Is the natural wine movement perforce like small boutique vintners versus the large vintners? Yes, for sure. But what we're seeing now is uh, big companies moving into the natural wine world or making a natural wine product. Especially in Italy, we're seeing this. We're seeing this in France so much so that there's a lot of scrambling how to protect natural wine from imitation. But the effect, there are certainly these big parkerized wines around now, but the point is that there's way more, even in the very big companies, there's way more variation. 
let's take Burgundy, for example, where there was always inoculation to start fermentation, which has a very big effect on the taste of wine. Now a lot of important wineries are going back to native yeast fermentation that adds for a lot of complexity. And they're also using fewer additives and taking a more gentle approach to winemaking all around. Sounds to me like you've had a great effect. I think I have. Significant effect. <laughs> yeah. So I want to go back to this wonderful book, To Fall in Love, Drink This. One of the things that I enjoyed so much was the byplay between you and your mother, that no matter what great wine you brought her, when it really came down to it, she wanted Manischewitz. Could you talk about that a little? When we come back, we'll hear more about Alice's valiant attempts to get her mother to appreciate fine wine, or at least wine worth drinking. This week on Heritage Radio Network's Meet and Three, we're spilling secrets. Do you know what is in that makes it banned? I do not, other than it being a proprietary blend of something that's supposed to be performance enhancing. If you go through the drive through in reverse, so your car is fully backwards, you get a free chocolate shake. Tune in to Meet and 3, available wherever you get your podcasts. And we are back with writer Alice Firing, author of To Fall in Love, Drink This. One of the things that I enjoyed so much was the byplay between you and your mother. In a way, this book could have never happened. Without my mother, um, because she's such great material, she really is straight out of central casting for the, the Jewish mother. But the only one that she really ever experienced was something like Manischewitz or Carmel or you know, that kosher wine that didn't come from grapes, but came from grape concentrate and a lot of other stuff. So over the years, I've tried to bring great wines to her. For Jewish holidays, I had been handicapped by having to find a really great kosher wine. There really aren't any natural wines that are kosher. So I finally gave up two years ago on Passover, and I just decided to get the wine that I wanted to drink and drew in an OU, as in Union of Orthodox Rabbi, on the <laughs> on the label and tried to trick her, which I did. Um, and I felt no guilt about it because it's perfectly kosher, just doesn't have a rabbi saying it's kosher. And... The greatest, greatest compliment I can get from her is not bad, but invariably she always takes not bad, her, not bad, not bad, not bad. <laughs> she takes her, you know, kosher wine and makes a melange, and she says, "Now that's wine." So, <laughs> so she adds a bissel Medeshevitz. Uh, <laughs> yes, indeed, indeed, yeah, yeah. I love that. I just love that. <laughs> Because that thread goes on through the book, because as I read the book, and I loved it, and let me just explain that after each chapter of the memoir, there's a kind of a little bit of a a wine dessert, where you list a group of wines that you really like. And I wasn't always sure that I understood how that part of the book, how the two parts of each chapter related to each other. Could you talk about that a little, what the, right. the logic was? At the end of each of these essays, there is an essay that either is directly related or tangentially related to some theme. Some of them were extremely easy for me. So 
at the end of the chapter about my grandfather, I use that as an excuse to talk about aromatic wines because there's some wines that are just so amazingly perfumed and some people hate them and some people love them. Uh, so that was easy for me. And I chose an example of one winemaker that I visited. Um, there were some that were quite different, difficult. Like how do you, how do you follow up going to a concentration camp with a wine <laughs> chapter? And there was, some, and that chapter actually would have been more perfect with vodka but my editor told me I had to use wine. I could not do a vodka chapter. Uh, Let me just say that that chapter was as powerful a description of the experience of, and I say this as someone who has done this, of visiting um, a concentration camp as will ever be written. It's just beautifully written. A novel take, such a personal take. That was very difficult. And so I was traveling with my friend, Melissa Clark, the food writer back in 2004 during that visit. And it's literally at the end of the day, we found a bottle of wine that happened to be Nebbiolo. So I chose to write about that particular, not that particular wine, because that wasn't a story, but a story that took me into very skeletal-like, scary vineyard. And about someone who had had a devastating stroke and had repaired himself through taking care of the vines. And in some ways, I felt the reader would go with me on that journey to go on this journey of, um, of regeneration as, and thematically take it back to anybody who, who escaped the camps and ha who lived through them. So sometimes like that, it wasn't exactly on the money, but you just had to trust me to take you on that ride. Another one, like after seeing Rodney Alcala, the serial killer, that one, I want to leave that one blank because it seemed to also the same way too, uh, too insulting to his victims to talk about a bottle of wine afterwards. So those, those chapters were very difficult for me to write. Incredibly moving to read. Alice, I have this sort of enduring question, which is how inquiring minds want to know, how did you have the confidence in your ability to write and taste and recommend wines? And how did you get started as a wine writer? I, I can understand being a memoirist, that I can understand because a good writer has life and experience. But that whole um, confidence in a very crowded, difficult field of writing about wine. Where did that come from? When we last tuned in to Alice, she was a little redhead in Dr. Denton's. And then the next thing we know, you are a full-fledged dancer, writer, wine person. What happened in between? What was it like to be the teenage Alice? Oh, it was torture to be the teenage Alice. It was miserable, but I was always writing. So I wrote my first novel at eight or six or something like that. And it was in, it was at six and it was an eight page novel. And I was winning writing awards and everybody else thought I was a writer, but I thought I was a dancer. And I mean, a writer from an Orthodox Jewish home, you can't be a writer. There was no role model for me to do that. My mother was like urging me to be a teacher so I could be home with the kids. But that was never for me. So I spent a lot of time running away. 
I stopped writing in college. I started writing again when I was in graduate school. I went to graduate school for dance therapy, did that for 10 years. And when I started writing my master's thesis, I started writing again. And it took me about eight years to get the nerve up to go back to New York City because I could not imagine following a writer's life in Boston. I'd come back to New York City and write plays and fiction and do that writing life. I could not see calling myself a writer before I had bylines. So that's how I got into journalism. One of the things that I wrote about was wine because after tasting wine with friends, absolutely with nothing in mind to be professional up in Boston. So I was in a tasting group for 10 years. I felt it was something that I knew something about. Food, and I had was food obsessed and design. I always loved design and architecture. So I had that little triumvirate. After I was asked to do a wine book by Food and Wine Magazine, I was put in the wine writer box. I had a book, I had a pedigree, and that was it. People tend to compartmentalize you. It was never my desire to be a wine writer. It, it felt actually very confining. But at the time that I discovered wine technology in the year 2000, that's when I had a mission. I was basically a whistleblower to the wine industry. Hey, do you know that there are 72 plus ingredients that are in your wine and how many different machines that can you know, press the wine flavor? I like that phrase that you were a whistleblower to the wine industry. That strikes me as very accurate and what a role to be. Um, yeah. Interesting. Well, I never really went after being a wine writer. That was something that I never wanted to do. I just wanted to write. It was just one of the things that I was writing about. And I, I guess youthful ignorance when I started, even though I was starting in my 30s, which seems very youthful now. <laughs> I see, this is going to sound really weird, but when I blind tasted a bunch of ice creams in Boston and nailed them all, that helped me gain confidence in my ability to recognize tastes and flavors. And I basically said, well, I can do this with wine as well. I knew that people okay. like the wine. You, you like. went from ice cream to wine. I like that. Right. <laughs> well, it basically gave me, wow, I have confidence in this. And then there was another thing. I remember I did an official, because I never really studied wine, but I did an official odor recognition test that was given by the whiskey industry and scored very highly. And I thought, okay, that maybe I have confidence to do this. And then I just, I like this wine. I can write about it. But quite honestly, it was a little arrogant in retrospect. I really didn't become a wine writer. And I don't think I really earned that until I started spending a lot of time in vineyards. So I think a lot of people say, I can write about this wine. I can identify it. I can entrance you with my language and get you to be interested in it. But it really was only when I started spending time with winemakers in the vineyards, making wine myself, that I actually understood the backstory enough to go deeper and to write about wine in a way that I, I think could more stitch it into life. That's great. That's just great. I I loved this book. I am someone who has a a little bit like I have a black thumb for plants. I have maybe a blue thumb for wine. I'm a little bit okay with wine, but not. I just can't imagine 
the magic tricks that I see when people who really understand wine can taste 20 wines and remember them all and differentiate them all. I can't. <laughs> you can't? That, that, is, that is a magic trick. And sometimes it's a party trick, blind tasting. Sometimes you get it, sometimes you don't. But it's an analytic way of looking at wine. And sometimes you get it, not. But you can tell a wine that is authentic. And I think that that's, I don't know, a gift, or at least that's my focus. I don't look for those other things. I look for authenticity and beauty. This book has gotten such a wonderful response. I loved reading the review in the New York Times. I was so happy for you. What does that feel like? It, when people get what you've written, when they understand where it's coming from, when they understand that it's about life as seen through a lens of wine, it's like we all want to be seen and heard. It feels extremely gratifying that it feels strange not to be beaten up because that's what people do with all of my books. So that feels strange, <laughs> but it feels fantastic that people, so many people have understood what I was trying to do. You can't always be in control. This thing as a writer, you want it to have enough control, but basically you want people to take it and to be able to see themselves in the book and to take the wine and, and the book and, you know, have it resonate with them. So that's the best thing the writer could do, not just to understand me, but for them to understand a little bit more about themselves. Well, I loved it. And there were parts of it I identified with and parts I didn't, but I loved the family stories, the travel stories, the romance, the terrible, terrible romance with someone who turned out to be a serial killer that you didn't even know or a serial rapist. I mean, there's a lot packed into a, there's a lot of drama packed into a small book. A it's a lot, lot of drama, drama. yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think it's pretty unexpected stuff in there. Well, thank you so much. And uh, everybody, buy this book. You'll enjoy it. Uh, you'll enjoy it for the writing. You'll enjoy it for the wine recommendations. You'll enjoy it for a, a deep look into the life of one of America's foremost wine writers. Alice Firing. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening. Let's Talk About Food is produced by The Food Voice. I'm producing, along with audio director and composer Mike Moss of Soundscape Boston. You can find more of our stories at our website, letstalkaboutfood.com, and on Heritage Radio or wherever you get your podcasts. Let's Talk About Food is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network. Food Radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe. <laughs>